0: This evening, I'd like to talk a bit about a very important teaching of the Buddha called the Kalama Sutta. The Kalama were uh, a group of people, and this uh, teaching is sometimes subtitled uh, the Charter of Freedom of Inquiry. Buddha's teaching didn't have this element in it, i rather doubt if I'd be here today. Uh, to me, extremely important. I would also subtitle it something else. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. By the way, I, one of my hobbies is cliches. <laughs> I, I love cliches. They just, listen to them. They come out of our mouths. We don't even know what we're saying. Many of them actually have some depth, you just we've been saying them over and over. But this one is usually not said correctly, it's usually said, the proof is in the pudding. No, you have to eat it, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's not just a nice beautiful pudding that sits there. And the Kalama Sutta is exactly that, it's talking about uh, the need to, to test these teachings. I would say it goes beyond that. It's a way of living, whether it's dharma teachings or the latest diet, or which dentist to go to. Uh, Life is teaching us all the time, and if we pay attention, there are lessons that can be learned, and the Buddha gives uh, some, uh, I think, very rich and helpful advice on that. But those of you who have been coming for a while know that I start every retreat talking about daily life, even though that's exactly why you're here, is to get away from daily life. And so you can't escape. The reason I do it is that I think we as lay practitioners need a practice that genuinely um, is effective, that takes on the challenges of being people who live in the world. Perhaps we have jobs, families, relationships, or want to get out of relationships, or want to get into relationships. Children, you know, school, university, unemployed, want to quit, want promotions, afraid of unemployment. It never stops, right? Daily life, forget about what's going on in the world, which is now coming in on top of that. We need a practice that can help us live in the world that we live in. The world that we live in is exactly the way it is. It's that world. Um, When we come here, it's very beautiful to to leave for periods of time. Um, But we're not monks or nuns. Uh, Most of us have to earn a living. Most of us are in a relationship of one sort or another. We need a practice. We have to handle money. We don't just eat one meal a day that's offered to us. We have the freedom to choose, which is both wonderful and also uh, harder. Uh, You know, in in Thailand, one meal just put your bowl, throw it in. You get used to it after a while. As long as well, my case, as long as I knew it wasn't forever. But anyway, um, we need a practice that. Um, serves us well uh, and the attitude that we bring to our practice here with total respect for the stillness and the beauty of nature and the many ways in which life is protected so that we can go deeply into ourselves it's not to discredit that in any way so much as to point out that uh Th- that is special, and then again, it is not special. If we seize upon it and make it stand for the entire practice, it becomes a kind of fragmentation where we scurry back to a safe place. Our cu- you can get very good at this cushion stuff. Some of you who are new may not re- you may think, you yeah, know, right, I like that. Really, in, out, in, out, it's like an elevator, you push a button, and you're calm, It's very nice. And then when you go home, you're the same jerk, only a calm jerk. (laughs) So we need help. Uh, We need a practice that fits us, that isn't um, appropriate for people who, who have a very different way of life, whether they're monastics or lay people who have a different mode of life, which would call for perhaps a different practice altogether. A retreat like this, only if you get some, um, so you know I didn't make this up. And even if I did, maybe it's true. I mean, I don't know. But here is from Master Sheng Yen, a Chan master from China. Practice should not be separated from living and living at all times should be one's practice." If you go more deeply into that, what he's saying is that the world exists in order to set us free, or that it can be viewed that way. That is this very same world that is so challenging. Um, If you have the right attitude, and that's really what I'm trying to get at, uh, becomes a source of liberation. Because in all the Buddha's teaching, the source of suffering is right here. It's always right here. And the freedom, the liberation from it, is also here. It's Rather remarkable. It's all right in this, as they say, fathom-long body. So when you look at a retreat, what's featured, of course, is a formal practice, sitting, walking, and in this retreat, yoga as well. but in between the cracks, so to speak, so many other things are going on uh, that there is a daily life here. There's no place where there isn't a daily life. That's what life is. It's daily and it's happening. And what, Whatever your title or uniform or uh, a definition you have of yourself, you get up, you wash, sometimes anyway, You eat, you have to take care of the body in some way. Uh, It calls for all kinds of activities which exist here as well. Moreover, you might say, "Yeah, but there are no relationships here, we're in silence. That's not true. We don't speak to each other, but we're aware of each other. And what goes on in the mind must be pretty obvious to you. That we're affected by one another on a retreat. And so it's not to pretend that doesn't exist, and it's also not to look for it, but put as many people as we have here together and live like this for a week, how can we not affect each other? Uh, and isn't that what's happening outside, only it's a, a microcosm, it's a more, it's a simplified version of daily life. People affect us when they're in our presence. We have a reaction, we can't help it. We don't like the way they dress. We do like the way they dress. You know, I, do I, I don't. You know, I, I've uh, I have a mind just like yours, and that's what goes on. Um, you can minimize that, but it's there, and it's a good place to get practice in noticing uh, that life is relationship. If you're a hermit, even a hermit has relationship, not just to nature, of course. But in one of the Buddha's teachings, where one, uh, one uh, monk is very proud of living alone, being in solitude, and upon being questioned by the Buddha, discovers that he isn't living in solitude, just his body is alone. Because his mind is so busy making up futures, recalling the past, making up ideas about what's happening in the present. Very, very busy, even though his body is alone. You know of the people in his presence. And so real solitude begins with physical support, structures and places like this, which are invaluable, precious. Uh, But they are designed to take us to to a depth that enables us to live fully and correctly and to contribute to our Dharma practice wherever we are. That's one approach to practice it easily becomes a cliché, and that's why uh, I want to emphasize your time here, please. We all, all four of us, uh, are committed to this. We do our best to live this way back home. Cambridge Insight Meditation Center was intentionally formed to be a bridge between contemplative life and so-called daily life. Uh, And it's very easy for it to be a cliché, because... Take just, just relationship, it's difficult. And no one would deny that. And so in many ways, sometimes I see retreats. I was in the medical corps, in the infantry, in the army for a couple of years, many years ago. And part of the training would, would be how to set up a field hospital, which is just in back of where the combat is going on, where people are wounded or, uh, sh- or frightened go into shock, uh, are taken. And then doctors and medics uh, work with them and then something happens. It's a bit like MASH, which has some truth in it, if you remember that series. You come in the front tent uh, tent wounded in some way, uh, and then the doctors do something with you, especially when it's mental problems, and then they send you out the back of the tent. And they send you back into combat. That's not what you want. And I see that this is sort of like that. <laughs> Why is he talking about relationship? I'm trying so hard to just in, out, in, out. So, what I'm suggesting in a nutshell is that the round of life here presents us with a, uh, a simplified, protected way to begin to practice a mode of living that we can take with us and bring to, back to wherever it is that we live in whatever kind of life situation we find ourselves. So, uh, briefly, whatever it is that you're doing, do it. Whatever your yogi job is, can you do it? Do it wholeheartedly. Uh, that's easier said than done. Because, as you know, the mind has preferences. Certain things are considered... Important or they're interesting. Other things ought to be gotten over with as quickly as possible, or ideally it'd be better if someone else had was to, had to do it. Why me? Uh, see see what's going on in you. Um, the Buddhist teaching has everything to do with self-knowing, self-knowledge, getting to know ourselves. Everything. It's about that, but it's not. Um, Simply learned on the cushion. Of course, if you sit still and take a look, you're going to find out some things about yourself. And our practice is equipping us to be able to do that intelligently, skillfully, usefully, and for us to, through understanding, to, to free ourselves from what we need to be free freed of. Self-knowing also happens all the time in life. Wherever we are, something happens. And in a situation like this, of course self-knowing goes on. I use it as a verb, knowing. Because it isn't um, a static kind of conclusion about yourself that you enter into a notebook and later write uh, a book about uh, the story of me and my life, starring me of course and directed by me. Maybe it's a movie. Eventually it will be a movie. Produced by me. What's a gaffer? A gaffer is me. I don't, you know, these titles at the end of movies. I've never, I don't know what half of them are. And even the extras who were kind of hired to play the part of the yogis here so that you feel you're on a retreat. You invented them too, what you think they are. Uh, and so it's the story of our life and here's the next chapter in it. Uh, self-knowing isn't that. Self-knowing, uh, first of all, it's something that happens in the moment, right here and right now, and that's its value in that moment. And it's not something that you file away and create a, a, a add to your story. Of course we learn things, and we can share them with our friends when we get home. But the kind of learning I'm talking about is probably not the kind of learning that we received in school. Um, It's a a discipline in and of itself, um, and it's a very subtle one. When we think of discipline, we think of getting up at the same time, coming to the hall at the same time, uh, do's and don'ts. Necessary in life and necessary on a retreat. Is another kind of discipline, much more subtle. And I would say, finally, uh, m- much more significant. And that has to do with learning. That has to do with the passion for, in our case, our practice is about seeing. Insight meditation. So observation, self-observation, pure observation, clear seeing, is Without it, uh, everything that we're talking about is just cardboard. It's dead. The seeing, if you're willing to pay attention, it's a kind of sensitivity. Uh, Learning goes with it. It's not that the seeing necessarily leads to learning. It can. But in that moment, if you're sensitive and awake, the learning is right there in the moment. I'll give some examples in in a bit. It's an active kind of seeing uh, that enables us to behave in certain ways, to edit certain things out of our life, or to learn how to do that, and to to nourish other qualities that we see as we live in this kind of alertness. When you live in a place like this for a week, there are possibilities of learning all kinds of things. Just your yogi job will teach you something. Because, so that nothing's a waste of time. It's not that we're putting forward an ideal as to how you're supposed to be. Except, of course, it is implied that observation observation and the learning that grows out of observation is a discipline. It's a very subtle one and it's under, we don't talk about it much. Let me, let me give you a few examples. I'm going to take uh, one. They're in, in the scope of things rather trivial, small. I wouldn't say trivial. I call it a passion or you could call it an interest because unless you're interested in learning about how you actually live, and maybe that's the best way to put it. Many years ago, the very first teacher that I had of these things was Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti. Uh, And I spent 10 days with him and then when it was time to leave, uh, his advice was, he didn't say anything about sitting or what he said was, uh, pay attention when you get, well I was, pay attention as to how you actually live. He underscored actually. Please try to, it sounds simple enough, say, well, you know, okay, that's obvious. Really hear what's being said here. Because if you try to do that, it is quite a discipline. How do you actually live from moment to moment? That's why it's knowing. It's a verb. It's active. Uh, We have images and notions about how we live. And they're not, uh, those are images. They're idealizations often. Some of them are negative. But the kind of knowing happens moment by moment. It has a certain texture to it. And any time you try to characterize it, uh, you explain it out of existence. Know, you, you feel it. It's intimate. And it's this kind of seeing. And the learning that grows out of it. So I'm going to take a couple of very small examples. This morning, I was teasing a bit, uh, watching people set up their watches, their wristwatches in front of them, or actually peeking to see how, many, how, much, how much time was left in the sitting. Now, and I was suggesting it's more valuable to look at the mind that wants to know what time it is and to look at the time. Granted, who doesn't know what I'm talking about? In a sitting where the body is on fire, we are not feeling calm where the mind is stirred up about something that's unresolved back home, uh, who, whatever it is, um, you look at your watch and you see there, there's only 11 minutes to go. It's like the cavalry in the cowboy music. You just see cowboy film. You're rescued. For 11 minutes, I can take anything. <laughs> and so in the short run, it's very helpful. You don't have to suffer now, this is mental anguish, because the body is the way it is. And so, it seems kind of practical. Now now and then, we look, and it's much longer than we thought, and then I can make it worse. Um, learning has to do with understanding that. What, what's going on here? It's a kind of fresh willingness to, to uh, examine our ordinary life, which we've been living sometimes for many, many years, to come to it as if for the first time with fresh eyes, and I don't care what your chronological age is. It can be done. It means dying to yesterday. Meditation retreats are a place to die. And I mean that, for those of you who knew, that might sound, my god, I came to the wrong place. (laughs) Die to this preoccupation with ourselves, where the mind is constantly preoccupied with itself, how it was, how it will be, what, how it's going to be, what to do, and the suffering that comes from that. We're learning how to let it go, let it go, leave it here. The peop- We all know what to do with it. This is a, a garbage disposal unit, retreat centers. And you can leave a lot of your stuff here, and it comes through the clear seeing. Now, it may seem tiny, just seeing that what you're doing is preferring to look at your watch so that you can feel a little bit better rather than going a little deeper and trying to understand why you need to look at your watch in the first place. One is more obviously a relief right away. The other uh, means you have to be with unpleasantness. You have to be with how restless you are. I don't want to... I, if I don't look at my watch, I, then I'm back where I started. And yet, that can take you to the source of what this is about. For example, m- many of us, and this is one of the teachings, are here because we're exhausted, bouncing back and forth between reward and punishment. Wanting, 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 getting sometimes, not getting running away from what we don't like, running for what we do like, trying to fill up some hole of inadequacy that no matter how much we pour in it, it just doesn't seem to fill up. We get good feelings, we stuff something in it, and then it's back again. How about going a little bit deeper than that? And in the process, training the mind to be sensitive, to begin to learn about itself so that you can actually release yourself from the suffering that your mind is causing. Let's get to another one which is ahead of ourselves. It's coming up this evening. Those of you who have been here know that uh, the formal sitting will end at a certain time and then one of us will say, you know, have some tea or miso broth Uh, and then usually, most retreats, perhaps all of them, I don't know, that are taught here, there'll be encouragement to come back and sit even though the schedule is officially over, uh, come back and sit. Sometimes we'll say if you have more energy. One kind of discipline is, okay, let's go back to the watch one. One thing to be said is, and it is said, stop, don't look at your watch. There will be no looking at watches. Okay, settled. You just don't do it because you know that uh, that's now the rule and you stop, but what has been accomplished there really? Whereas if you stop out of understanding, out of learning, it's a totally different experience. Even something that tiny, when you learn something yourself firsthand and free yourself from even such a tiny bit of of bondage, there's the joy of learning. There's an energy that comes with it, which is rejuvenating and actually uh, enables you to practice even more deeply something you learn for yourself. You're not repeating what anyone said. You dug it out of your own experience. There's a fulfillment that comes from that instantly. Okay, and the second, uh, should I sit the late night sitting or should I go upstairs? Well, the most obvious thing to say, if you're really committed, you're a committed yogi, you will sit no matter how tired you are because that's what committed yogis do. And you could, could do it, feel heroic. And I'm not saying that doesn't have value, it does. And in the short run, it's actually much more impressive. As are all these outer disciplines. But when is it wisdom to go back, to go upstairs and go to sleep? And when is it wisdom to stay in the hall and sit a little longer than the schedule calls for? I don't think anyone can tell you that. That's something that you have to through sensitivity through attention and that's what i meant by observation as a kind of learning which is its own discipline because as that t- starts to take off it becomes an ongoing way of living it's not chronic introspection trying to figure every, everything out with thinking we already know how to do that you just get a headache it's more staying alert sensitive and being willing to learn from what life teaches us. we this is the Kalama Sutta is getting at this. Um, let me start uh, start that a bit. We we won't be able to cover it in any uh, satisfactory way this evening. The Kalamas are people who are perplexed. Uh, Apparently they were rather um, motivated, refined, educated, all kinds of things that made them very interested in in many spiritual practices, very motivated, a bit like, I don't know where you live, but I live in Cambridge, a little bit like Cambridge in this sense. Uh, teachings from everywhere coming through that that town. And every teacher who comes through discredits all the other teachings and says, we ha- this is the only way, what I have. And bulletin boards are full of smiling faces from different uh, Asian countries, all promising to deliver us from something or other. Uh, and it's not just Buddhism, it's uh, different forms of yoga. You want one that's vigorous and athletic, you want one that's gentle and... Uh, And then whatever it is, different forms of Taoism, ways of, I don't think I have to spell it out, I think you all know what I'm getting at. Throw everything out, just limit it to Buddhism. What kind of Buddhism do you want? You want Theravadan Buddhism? Yeah, it's kind of plain and unadorned and honest and direct, and you can understand it in English. But it's a little dry, you know. And the teachers, they're lay people, and they don't have nice outfits that designate them as teachers. They have sweatpants. (laughs) Let's go over to the Tibetans. Wow, they look like teachers all kinds of very nice colors and arranged so beautifully and it isn't so dry but there's it, so much more things you can do visualizations and all kinds of things i think i like that but then again there's zen zen is funny that you can laugh as you learn these other teachers i don't know the Theravadins go on and on about sutras all oh, the buddha said this the buddha said that well which one is it so you try them out, and this is uh, my life I'm talking about. This is not, I'm not just trying to be funny. That's what Cambridge is. People come to the center who are, have been through or are in the process of being everywhere. Okay. Um, and they go to the Buddha, and they say, Buddha, here you are, still another one. So what are you going to do? Tell us that your trip is the best one. And everyone else is, doesn't really know what enlightenment is. The Buddha doesn't do that. Otherwise, there would be no teaching tonight. He says, the reason you're doubtful is that many things, you have doubt, is that many things in life are doubtful. Now, Who can deny that? Have you ever been taken or overestimated things or romanticized or glorified things which turned out to not be quite what you thought they were? Do you think that stops in spiritual circles? I would say it's worse. Our need to create an incredible world that we can identify with, um, I don't think it's any less certainly. Okay, so what he's saying is, okay, here's I'll put it in from the from the teachings from the Buddha. So the Kalamas of Kasaputta approached the Buddha. On arrival, some of them bowed down to him and sat to one side. Some of them exchanged courteous greetings with him and sat to one side. Some, raising their joined palms, sat down to one side. Some, announcing their name and clan, sat down to one side. That was the custom of the time. Some of them sat to one side in silence. As they were sitting there, they said to the Buddha, Lord, Lord, some teachers come to Kassaputa expounding and glorifying their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they abuse them, disparage them, deprecate them, and pull them to pieces. Other teachers on coming to Kassaputa, do the same thing. When we listen to them, we feel doubt and uncertainty as to which of these teachers are speaking truth and which ones are lying. here's what the Buddha says back. Come, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by consistency with your own views, by probability or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. Don't just rely on that. When you know for yourselves, That these mental qualities are unskillful, these mental qualities are blameworthy, these mental qualities are criticized by the wise, these mental qualities, when acted on, lead to harm and suffering, Then abandon them. When you know for yourselves, that's an important word, for yourselves, that these mental qualities are skillful, these mental qualities are blameless, these mental qualities are praised by the wise, these mental qualities, when acted on, lead to well-being and happiness. Then, keep following them. I think what's important here is that the Buddha is giving the, uh, the people of Ka- uh, the, uh, the Kalamas the right to question. He's saying it's legitimate. I think that's probably unique in religious life. Often what we hear is quite the contrary. If you're a believer or have faith, uh, that's enough. In fact, as we know, sometimes to question a religion can be a death sentence. Apparently some of that's going on in Iran right now. There's a teacher, professor, who was a revolutionary. He helped set up the present Iran. And as a professor is now not pleased with what the mullahs are doing, and he's telling his students, we're not monkeys. You know, to just do what we're told. Uh, their interpretation of the Quran is uh, four to six hundred years dated. Uh, it's destroying us. It has no relevance whatsoever. It's not even uh, what the Quran intended. And he was sentenced to death. However, there was such an outrage by the students that the government backed off. I don't really know how it's been resolved. Maybe some of you do. So this is not something to take for granted. We do, I think. If all you know is, is this, then, of course, it's America, is, it's part of our ideology, freedom, freedom of thought, and so forth. Um, but this is getting internal. You can be free outwardly and enslaved inwardly, enslaved to dogma, uh, enslaved to personality, all kinds of ways of being enslaved even though you're outwardly um, free. In the time we have remaining, which is not much, I'm going to go a few minutes over, what I'd like to emphasize this evening, and then we'll go into it more deeply, is this uh, encouragement to question is very, very important. It's also important to know that the Buddha is not rejecting texts, classical teachings. He's not rejecting any of the things that he just mentioned. Rather, he's saying don't give them final authority. Okay. Now, what he's encouraging is investigation, inquiry. And I'm going to tell you a bit about why I was so in, am so interested in it and why I definitely would not be doing this practice if it w- did not include this. Because that was one of the first suttas that I was brought into Contact with. Um, I had a, a my father uh, was very unusual in one way, coming from a long line of rabbis, uh, including his own father who was an ex-rabbi who bolted out of disillusionment uh, and then became anti-religious, which is an under- understatement, or he hated religion. I have never met anyone who hated religion more than my father. Honestly and truly, uh, and but yet I had to go to Hebrew school, Orthodox, seven years to please my grandparents and my mother. And he would tell me bullshit, you know. <laughs> and I loved my father, and I knew he was right, of course. And he would give me assignments like ask the rabbi just how how did Moses get the Red Sea to split? And I would. You know, like a dutiful son, ask the rabbi, and the rabbi would just be furious. He knew exactly what I was trying to get at. And he would punish me. I still haven't gotten an answer, but anyway. Also, I think my father is unique in that in the history of of the world of the Jews, anyway. I think he may be the only person at my bar mitzvah, he paid the rabbi not to give a talk. So I think what I'm doing is just rebelling. <laughs> and I was there, and my mouth dropped. I was embarrassed, but he, he, he said, please, Rabbi, here. Just, but the rabbi gave the talk anyway. <laughs> and he said, I have to, Mr. Rosenberg. You know, this is what I do. I really, and my father was furious. I'll give you how he ended up in a nursing home at 90 years old, within two weeks of his death, uh, our family came to visit him, and he was speaking in Russian. And uh, we, we did, he didn't know we were there yet. He was in his room in the nursing home. And this is what he said. It was translated. I'm not fluent in Russian. He said, "Okay, God, we're coming close to the end now. Uh, maybe there is something to this religion stuff, this God stuff. I don't know. I am definitely more receptive." than I've been, <laughs> he said, but look, I've been looking for a long time, I'm 90 years now, old now, he said, and so far, you haven't shown me shit, <laughs> okay, okay. I tell you this because there's, there's more, that is, uh, the household was run in the following way, that is, my father would have liked to have been a lawyer, preferably a judge, but he wound up being a cab driver. And so his court was my mother and and myself. Rather, uh, the opportunities were a little bit less uh, developed. Uh, And I was mischievous, and I was not at home, I was a nice little boy at home, and as soon as I got out of the door, I was just constantly getting in trouble in school and with the neighbors, in the neighborhood. And what we would do, he'd come home from work, and it was a ritual, if I had caused some trouble, um, he would take a shower and light up a cigar, and then we would have whole court. And he encouraged me to give my side of the story. Usually my mother would press charges <laughs> <laughs> and he would listen. And I didn't always get off, sometimes I would, but he'd always explain to me why what I did was wrong. Your Aunt Clara was very upset, she then went to your mother and complained about you, Then your mother, I come home, I'm exhausted, and I have to listen to your mother, and now wants me to call up your Aunt Clara to calm her down, and that's the last thing I want to do, and it's all because couldn't you just bring the bagels and the bread home just on time and get it over with? So he would explain these things to me, whether I got off or not, and I was very used to, I was encouraged to question if he gave made a decision, he would say, what do you think of it? And sometimes I could talk my way out of it. <laughs> Not always. And of course, my, my mother was pleased if I did. There was, it was uh, very light. Um, but I got used to freedom of inquiry, that this is natural to question, to challenge, to ask to ask questions. It wasn't strange. One day, my father must have been exhausted and fed up with me and some, for some reason. Uh, Instead of holding court, he just locked me in the bathroom. <laughs> and the bathroom was a kind that had a glass window that you couldn't see through. And I wasn't used to that. And I just went comp- psychotic. And I took something, a shoe or something, and I just smashed it. Smashed the window and climbed out. And my parents were just, like, terrified. Uh, they never do that again. They always went back to reason. Um, my bias was to not believe that everything is baloney. So coming to the Dharma, it took me quite a while, and I still have it. I still have, I've had to work on myself to, well, maybe there is something true from someone other than me. Maybe the Buddha had something, came up with something that I couldn't have cooked up in a million years, even just following the breath, something as simple as that. Give me all the money in in the world and give me uh, five years to come up with something as good as this to just calm the mind, to give you energy and to feel just great joy. Just pay attention to your breath. I never would have come up with it. Nor could Einstein or a think tank at Palo Alto. No, I don't think so. Okay, so we need some help for God's sakes. That's why we're here. And so I had to learn how to not uh, just put everything down and def- find out that there were some things that were... and other was the cynical, skeptical attitude that I was brought up on uh, was part of the story. And if, if done correctly, it was very, very useful. But if not balanced, it was actually destructive because you would never learn certain things because you would never uh, allow yourself to let something new in That might be valuable. In other words, not everything is baloney. There are some genuine people and teachings in this world, and fortunately, I've met them. They've helped me very much. So, um, this attitude, which, you know, I I don't mean to idealize my father, but he did emphasize that. When I got to college, Socrates was the one I, my hero. Socrates said, "A life unexamined is not a life worth living." That's a pretty strong statement. Know thyself. Someone asked him, but do you know yourself, Socrates? He said, no, but I know that I don't know myself. I don't know if it's meant in quite the way in which we think of it here. He saw the teacher as a midwife. That is, no teacher can give you freedom. What we can do is play a small role in helping you to give birth to yourself which is just naturally yearning to be born. It's, it's not far away, it's you. But in the meantime, we're spinning our wheels, going round and round and round. I want, I don't want, he said, she said. We're all doing that. We have this mind. And from Socrates came Krishnamurti, if any of you <coughs> know him. So I've, I've always been attracted to, let's say, male figures like that. The Buddha was different, because it, it had that, but it also, uh, as we'll get into next time, the Kalama Sutta is not, uh, for example, if you heard what I said, what is also included there is the Council of the wise. Um, since I've screwed up the walking anyway... let me set the stage for next time. It seems like what the Buddha is teaching is skill. How to live skillfully. That's what it all seems to amount to, but it's a mental skill. If you want to master anything, to be skillful at it, um, you have to do certain things. I watched my stepdaughter. She's learning ballroom dancing. And of course, she has a teacher and she practices and goes to classes and does it. And I've watch that she looks at videos of herself doing it and sees. In other words, you master a skill by doing something and then being sensitive to the outcome from that activity. What did I just do? If You, will, you have to be willing to learn, otherwise you just keep uh, re- repeating the same uh, formula again and again and again. And so you act and then the world shows you something and little by little you refine your dancing. You also uh, watch videos of master dancers. See how they do it. You watch them. And you get the best teachers you can who really, they already know how to dance. And you go to them and you seek help. And I realize, great, this is what the Kalama Sutta is talking about. But there's a difference. Um, Because the art of dancing, as important as it is, and any other art, Uh, you can see some of that, let's say, uh, when you see someone dance. What about living? See, because a Dharma master, it's the art of living. Do we know? Do you know about who we are or or other teachers that you've had? How will you know? Let's assume uh, we are enlightened or we're half-enlightened or three-quarters enlightened. You can't get inside of my consciousness. You can make inferences. Oh, look at that. You can make judgments. But finally, I think you're going to see that you, that there is no, that, that no teacher can, you can't have final confidence in your judgment of, of a teacher. And you see, finally, you're on your own. You always were. That's the news that the Buddha's giving us. There's help, but the help is to help you see that you need to help yourself. The practice is training, equipping you to re-educate yourself in a way that enables you to live, to flower as a human being. We'll draw, we'll go into that a little bit more deeply next time with this uh, Kalama Sutta. Can we have a few moments of silence? While you're being silent, let me ask you. I didn't go into my own biography just because I want to be the Vipassana answer to Ramdas. What is your attitude towards freedom of inquiry? Do you really want to question how you live? Or would you rather someone just, look, just tell me what to do? Breathe in, in, out, in, out, lifting, moving, placing. Just tell me what to do, I'll do it, and then I'll be okay, right? Find out that's what self knowing is, is find whatever you teaching there is, it's about us. And so you can look and see, well where am I in this? Do I is my mind free enough to look? Do I even want to look? How much do I want to be free? Do I really want to be free? Or just calm.